Today is a big day in Ohio, one that I don't think we've seen the likes of before. A day when the governor and a bunch of other elected officials have got to explain to the Supreme Court of Ohio why they should not be held in contempt of court. It's one of the topics we'll be talking about on this episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with a full house. Lisa Garvin is back and over Ooh. her technical difficulties. Woohoo. And we have Courtney Astolfi and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. Happy Wednesday, all. Hello, everybody. Hello. How's, how's it going? It, it's going to be an interesting day. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Let's start talking about it. Did the threat of being held in contempt of the Supreme Court persuade Governor Mike DeWine and his Republican colleagues to quit defying the court and get back to work drawing legislative maps that fit what the Ohio Constitution requires. Seth, this was a bit of a surprise when the redistricting commission got together briefly on Tuesday. Uh, definitely. I thought that Republicans were going to basically kind of stand pat and really just try to defy, defy, defy. But yeah, Governor Mike DeWine and State Auditor Keith Faber kind of come out and say, hey, Republicans are now working on um, you know, getting legislative maps back. It, it really was a surprise because it wasn't even a meeting about legislative maps. And I think you have to think that the uh, the contempt threat um, persuaded them to come back to the table, so to speak, or at least, you know, um, <laughs> tell everybody that they were coming back to the table. So I'll be interested to see what the, the actual results of this are, um, if, they, if they do actually come back with a map that is constitutionally compliant or if this is more kind of posturing, maybe trying to hold off some stuff. But, you know, that's kind of just speculation at this point. I don't know, Seth. I, I think that the governor uh, is worried uh, on two fronts. He's running for re-election, and this is about the rule of law. And he's on the record saying this is about the rule of law. He said publicly, we have to do this. This required of us to do this, and they haven't done it. I think he's also worried about his son. His son has failed to recuse himself, he's the Supreme Court Justice, from this case. Now, yesterday he's flitting the hair saying, well, if it gets to contempt, I'll recuse. It's the same case. <laughs> How do you make the difference? It's, like, it's ridiculous. I think the, the governor does not want his son to be in a position where he's voting on contempt. So the governor has the ability to rally three of the other Republicans with the Democrats and put together the maps. This isn't that complicated, right? Oh, no, I, it hasn't been complicated since it started. It's been made complicated kind of by design by certain members of the redistricting commission. Um, and, you know, part of the other part of this equation that I do sort of wonder to myself is we know that uh, Mike DeWine, like, actually cares about sort of the, you know, his public image and his media presentation and whatnot. And this has started getting a lot of national traction. Um, I don't know if, and you know, we've obviously done tons of reporting on it. Andrew's done great work on it. Uh, NBC News actually did something on this too, kind of a drop-in sort of report. And I, the governor did not look good in that at all. And that's going out to a national audience. So I wonder how much that plays into it too, this sort of uh, the public perception of it, it you know, that, that's, that part of the equation. Well, you look, I got to say, I think we played a big part of the public perception. Nobody was calling this a constitutional crisis until we did. You have two houses. You have the legislative branch, the executive branch going head to head with the judicial branch. And I think that Bob Cup and Matt Huffman, the speaker and the Senate president, didn't think that the Supreme Court would go to this length. But really, 
the court had no choice. If you're, if you're going to preserve the institution of the Supreme Court, when people defy an order, it has to go to contempt. I don't know what these guys were thinking, but this is an unprecedented constitutional crisis. The two branches of the government refusing to do their constitutional duty that the voters in large numbers demanded of them. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see if you know some of the backroom stuff ever comes out or not, right? Because like I said, you do have DeWine and Faber basically coming out and saying, no, we're going to get to this. We already saw the depositions from, you know, uh, the, the lawsuit, the first lawsuit, right? Um, or the first challenge, at least, where you could see that there was right. a lot of discomfort among, you know, the executive officers, DeWine, Faber and Secretary of State Frank LaRose with how the process was going on the part of Cup and Huffman. And I kind of wonder to myself if you know, we've, we've reached this sort of critical mass at this point, And maybe there's, you know, I, I just kind of wonder in the back of my head if they said, hey, if, you know, we don't actually produce something constitutional, we'll vote on uh, the Rodden map is the one that the court keeps pointing to, which is, um, you know, definitely not the map that, you know, Republican legislative leaders want because it is a much more competitive map. Right. So I, I wonder how much of that is going on in the background. Well, I I have wondered from the start, once the difficulty started, why DeWine, the governor, the number one guy, didn't just take control and and blow off. Cup and Huffman have never been representing the people of Ohio. They're not even elected by the people of Ohio. They're elected in tiny little districts, and everything they've done has been selfish reasons. It's a continuation of what we saw with HB6, where these guys are just bums trying to preserve themselves. But DeWine could have taken the lead. He could have said, hey, Faber, hey, LaRose, the Democrats want to get this done. We don't need those guys. Let's get it done. And at every juncture when this thing has hit the impasse, he has stood quietly by or not even quietly by. He has said, we have to do this. We're required to do this. And then he allows them to adjourn. So I, I would love to see in the back room, if you're correct, did he finally stand up? And that's why they said yesterday, yes, we're moving on this, because DeWine told Kupman Hoffman, go away, you bozos. We'll, well do and this. one other thing to consider with this, to your point about election and worried about the public profile, one kind of significant thing that happened separately of this is DeWine got the Ohio Republican Party endorsement, right? That, that will go a fairly long way in staving off any of those primary struggles that he may have had. I don't really think he was ever in too much terrible trouble, given that the field's kind of uh, jam-packed. But, you know, that happens, and then all of a sudden the tone kind of switches pretty quickly, right? So I, I do wonder how much of that is seeping into it where, you know, you're maybe he's not so much focused on some of that primary stuff, which, you know, I, I think was kind of evident from the beginning. And now he is more focused on how he appears to a general population that is going to vote in November because a governor being held in contempt of court isn't exactly good for, uh, you know, trying no. to sway voters to come to your side. No, up until now, they've said nobody's paying attention to gerrymandering, which isn't quite true. But when the governor faces potentially being put in a jail cell, uh, people pay attention. We'll be talking about Pat DeWine in a minute, so we'll, we'll wait for that. But the one thing I do wonder, they missed their deadline Friday. If they get the maps in today at the time when they're supposed to show cause why they shouldn't be held in contempt, you'd have to think that the Supreme Court would be less likely to hold them in contempt. Oh, yeah, right? I don't think they would hold them in contempt if they put maps in. I think the whole point of contempt is that 
is they're basically saying you need to get us maps. The the commission said we're not doing that. So by kind of virtue of there then being maps, it, it sort of renders contempt moot at that point. So I think, yeah, if they do get maps out today, then I think the contempt issue kind of goes away, at least for the time being. They still might slap them around a little bit, which is always good to quote in our <laughs> stories. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland attorney Sabod Chandra is well-known in Northeast Ohio for taking on controversial cases, but in a Jaga County case involving university hospitals and the frozen embryos it harmed, Chandra is the controversy. And the Ohio Supreme Court just dealt him a blow. Courtney, let's get up to date on this case. We've talked about it previously. Yeah, speaking of possible contempt, um, so, you know, Sabod Chandra is representing the former director of the UH Fertility Lab. And, and last year, he filed an affidavit from his client that, that essentially blamed staff and administrators at UH for the freezer malfunction that led to this problem. You know, someone from UH called a staff member on Geauga County Common Pleas Judge Carolyn Poshke's staff and, and basically pointed out that this affidavit contained similar info to filings that were, were sealed in other cases. So the judge goes on to order that filing removed. Chandra resubmits the documents hours later. Now, now fast forward, the judge summoned Chandra to appear in court, explained why he shouldn't be held in contempt. But before we got to that hearing, Chandra asked to have the judge removed from the case and, and for the appointment of a new judge. And, and you know, we, fa- we come to find out that Maureen O'Connor says, nope, no way, we're not doing that. Yeah, he's in trouble. I, I, we should, before we get into why what he did was so wrong, we should point out that this, this judge is out of control. The judge is protecting university hospitals and not serving the public that, sh- that elects her. She's keeping secret the, the information about this terrible wrong university hospitals did to all these people that entrusted them with frozen embryos. They had no redundancy in their system. The system broke and the embryos were all lost and people that had dreams of having children had them dashed. And that's really bad. And the courts are in place to serve the public and the judge is serving university hospitals. That said, I was stunned that Sabod Chandra did what he did. I mean, the judge sealed one of his filings saying, no, no, I don't want that to be public. And then he, like you said, he refiled it in the public sphere, allowing people to see it. Now, the judge making it secret didn't serve a purpose because we already had a copy and we'd already publicized it. So it's all kind of stupid. But he does look like he's going to face potential contempt. Well, you know, his argument here, his defense here was that his staff resubmitted those those documents hours later because his office noticed an error in them. I don't know how much stock you put into that argument, and and Maureen O'Connor rejected it. She said that Chandra's attorney failed to show that the judge had hostile feelings towards him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but now, now that we have this resolved, Chandra's gonna, I mean, I would assume, go back and, and face that contempt hearing that got put on pause. Right. Right. That's so he could be in some in some big trouble. It, it's sad because he's trying to serve the public interest, you know, and his own interest by getting this information out. This is pretty important information about the breakdown there. Um, and it is a shame that the judge is trying to keep the public from finding out about what this institution did 
to all these people. But can You're I say to, something? To, can oh, I ahead. jump in and say something? And, and this is just my own opinion, so take it as such. But Dr. Botnager, who is, you know, the head of the, or was the head of the fertility clinic and Chandra's client, I, I feel like this is like smoke and mirrors because the guy didn't live in Cleveland. He only came to visit Cleveland like once a month, you know, visit the fertility clinic. And he's blaming everybody else but himself for the failure at the fertility clinic. So that's just my feeling. I just feel like this might be a little bit of distraction from who the real culprit might be. Although he did provide information we didn't know before about the failure to get the the chemicals and things that were needed to keep the refrigeration going. I mean, there was more specificity in in this filing about what the breakdowns were than anything else we'd seen. Uh, So and again, this should be at least a public debate, at least if it gets out there. Somebody like you, Lisa, can say, yeah, I'm not giving that guy credibility because I think he's to blame. But if we don't get the information to start with, we never Mm. find out what happened. And look, the courts are not there to serve the defendants. The courts Mm -hmm. are there to serve the public interest. And this judge is not. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What do federal prosecutors think of disgraced former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder's petition to throw out his bribery and racketeering charges in the biggest scandal ever to hit the statehouse? Lisa, when he filed this, I thought it was preposterous, and I guess the prosecutors think so, too. Yeah, I wonder if they all had a good laugh, you know, before they, you know, went to the judge. But yeah, um, so what happened was uh, Larry Householder's attorney, Stephen Bradley and Mark Marine filed a dismissal, you know, request. And in that dismissal request, they claimed that there was absolutely no payment agreement. The money that went to Generation Now, which was the nonprofit, which is where this money was allegedly funneled through, they said that was just political contributions that are protected by the First Amendment. And there was no evidence of racketeering, no coordination, and no quid pro quo. Now, the federal prosecutors, on the other hand, said, hold up. They're asking uh, U.S. District Judge Timothy Black in Cincinnati to reject this dismissal request. They say he absolutely conspired to launder first energy payments through Generation Now. He was the leader of the Generation Now enterprise and controlled it. And just FYI, Generation Now did plead guilty and they forfeited one and a half million dollars back to the government because of this. So, yeah. Well, the, 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 what's what's hilarious about it is the people that provided the $60 million in bribes to get the quid pro quo have admitted it. They said, yes, the $60 million was bribes that we paid to get quid pro quo. For him to say there's absolutely no evidence of a quid pro quo, you have one of the parties pleading guilty. I thought this was one of the, the sillier tactics uh, taken so far. Uh, It it just, this guy is in a major hot seat, and you would think they wouldn't go with a frivolous filing. I I really would be shocked if the court granted his request, uh, and the prosecutors clearly would be too. Yeah, it was a big Hail Mary on his part. We'll see if someone catches the pass, but it doesn't look like it. No, and his trial, it sounds like it'll be next year when we finally get to it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, let's talk about Pat DeWine. The Supreme Court justice has baffled every legal expert we've talked to with his refusal to recuse himself from the gerrymandering case in which his dad is a central figure, his dad the governor. 
But is he trying to split hairs with the possibility of a contempt of court citation against his dad, Seth? This one kind of boggles the mind as much as his original refusal to recuse. Yeah, it might be a little bit of that going on for sure. Uh, you know, in some of the legal experts that, you know, again, Andrew talked to, uh, you know, they said there there maybe is some nuance with the, the maps, right, and uh, ruling on that. But in terms of ruling if your father is in contempt of court, that's a pretty clear uh, that's a pretty clear cut conflict of interest. So uh, I'm not I'm not surprised that he came out and said that he he wouldn't rule on that. Well, I guess am, am I surprised about that? <laughs> now that I think about it, because it is Ohio, right? And we've seen how this has gone. But regardless, he. he but it's the same case. It's the same case. This was the danger of not recusing himself. We taught every we could not find a single precedent where a judge did not recuse themselves from hearing something about their family member and no legal expert we talked to could understand it this they all said this is really cut and dried and but but this is the danger by staying on the case you risk facing the preposterous idea that you would have to vote on holding your dad in contempt he should not be on this case the and it's the same you can't say the contempt is separate from the case it's the same case. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not saying you can say that the contempt is separate from the case, just that basically I'm just kind of repeating what the, the legal experts have said about this, right, about there maybe being some nuance, maybe being the kind of operative word there, right, uh, in terms of like, okay, well, this is a policy sort of deal and this is an actual ruling on that. But, yeah, I mean, it is the same case and it does seem to be it, – it does – seem to be a little weird that you're like, okay, well, I can rule on this part of the case, but not this part of the case. But like you said, it is all the same case. So why the right. the inconsistency going on there? It just puts a light on the hypocrisy of him staying on the case to begin with. And, you know, he's been active in the case and he's making, he's, he's joined dissents that are over the top in trying to preserve gerrymandering. So he's been voting on a dissent to support his father. It's bizarre. Anyway, we'll have to see. I bet he's praying that it doesn't come to that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Normally, it takes seven years to go to college and attend law school. But now two Northeast Ohio institutions want to shorten that. How do they want to do that? Yeah, so we're looking at a partnership here between Kent State and Cleveland State to provide this, uh, you know, six-year combined bachelor law degree program for students. Now, students would essentially, they take three years at Kent State towards their bachelor degree, and then they'd move on to the Cleveland Marshall College of Law for three years. After they do their first year in law school in Cleveland, they'll earn their bachelor's from Kent, and then they'll finish out their two years and, and, and wrap up with a law degree. And save some money in the process. It's a it's a good it's a good way to get people a lot of degree. We we all know we need lots more lawyers in this town, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's interesting because this is this does have like two focus areas. At Kent State, you can either go get your your Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, International Relations, Public Policy, that kind of thing, or take the health route, uh, public health and related health fields. So it's kind of specialized in that way, but it's still some options for students. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, I signed this question to you because I know you have a contrary position on it. <laughs> when the Mayfield Village police chief said he wanted speed cameras on Interstate, uh, is, 271. Interstate 271, he said it was all about safety and slowing down traffic, not money. So how much money are those cameras generating for the village that says it's not about the cash grab? 
Well, in the first 40 days of actual enforcement, because they did test this out in December and just issued warnings, but from January 1st to February 11th, they collected $54,000 in fines. Now, the people that supply the cameras, Gatso, they get 38% of that. So Mayfield Village ended up with $33,362. I did the math. That's $1,350 a day in tickets being written. Uh, Police Chief Paul Matthias says, well, you know, he's worried about the perception that people think it's a cash grab and not public safety. He says, you know, it's dangerous for cops to park on 271 and do speed, you know, enforcement. And he says that that money will be used for vehicles, roadside safety equipment, body cams, dash cams, and other things. However, council can decide to spend the revenue on other capital needs. But, you know, I did a little bit of research because I remember when they started this, they were saying that people were driving really fast when they did, you know, from December to the end of the year, in two hours, they caught 313 people going at least 76 miles an hour. The highest was 114 miles an hour, and they issued 1,700 warning letters from December till the end of the year last year. So there's a lot of speeding going on. I mean, that's just up the road for me. There's a lot, because it's close to 90. People are like hauling ass trying to get to 90 there. If you really want to make people believe this is about safety and not a cash grab, they should take that money and donate it to a fund for uninsured motorists who get hit and have to pay for their own repairs or something. Because otherwise, it's about the money. It always was about the money, and they're spending the money on law enforcement stuff. I was just going to say, isn't sort of saying, hey, this is what we plan to spend the money on, kind of admitting that it's a revenue generator and not... Like yeah, you're, exactly. you're saying, hey, this is this is our budget line item. We're going to spend the, We're going to raise this money to spend on X. So. But I just yeah. saw on Cleveland.com today that Parma Heights is jumping back on the bandwagon. There's an article in today's Cleveland.com. It says they're turning their camera back on at Pearl and York Road after being off for three years. And then Gates Mills has it on Mayfield Road. So it's like catching on. Yeah, it, and it's not about the money. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I'd never <laughs> believe that. And unless they, they do something benevolent with the money, still not going to believe it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio's congressional contingent and the candidates running for U.S. Senate had plenty to say Tuesday about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Seth, what was the gist of their comments? Well, it's kind of a... You know, well, somewhat tale of two stories, right? When you look at the members of Congress, they basically all came out in support of, you know, sanctions and trying to punish Russia or at least prevent Russia from going, you know, full on invasion in Ukraine. Um, you know, you had uh, Marcy Kaptur coming out very much saying, hey, this is, you know, what Russia is doing is illegal. We need to, you know, halt the Nord Stream 2 pipeline deal between them and, you know, Russia and Germany. You had, you know, Senator Sherrod Brown, Tim Ryan both coming out saying, yeah, we need to, you need to support, you know, Ukraine in any way possible. And, you know, I I thought it was, you know, it was expected what Rob Portman was going to say, right? He co-chairs the Senate Ukraine caucus, um, you know, big Ukrainian population in Ohio, basically said much of the same thing that a lot of the other elected said that, you know, this is illegal. It's clear violation of international law. There need to be sanctions. The Biden administration needs to work with NATO allies to make sure there's this coordinated response. And then you switch over to the Senate, the I'm sorry, the uh, the uh, Senate race. Right. And it was kind of interesting because you did have Jane Timken, Matt Dolan, Mike Gibbons all come out and basically say much of the same thing. Right. That, yeah, the Biden administration needs to 
you know, uh, uh, do sanctions and whatnot, while still criticizing Biden for not doing more to deter Russia, right? It is still an election, so that's not totally surprising. Obviously, the big story out of the Senate race, though, has been J.D. Vance, who's taken this very odd sort of stance that, hey, Ukraine doesn't matter and Russia should be just kind of left to their own devices and do whatever they want, which, you know, and, and on top of that, insulting uh, you know, generals and other some, you know, veteran service members in the process. And, you know, I've been talking with people about it and it, it, it I, I'm trying to figure out who the like constituency is for that. Right. It seems to me to just be this kind of public media play where he just wants to get attention. And, um, I, you know, I guess to an extent, it's probably just uh, he's trying to reach out to the Tucker Carlson crowd. I just watched a clip of Tucker I, saying this yeah. isn't a big deal. Putin's not a bad guy. Right. But but. Right, Putin's not a bad guy. I mean, they would would they have been in the 30s then, the ones standing by saying, yeah, yeah, Hitler's not bent on world domination. Let him have a couple of countries. I mean, I, there's no is there nobody paying attention to history here? That that appeasement was a failure. That that when they did that in the 30s, it created World War II and and not taking a stand. I'm stunned by that that position that yeah 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 we don't care that it doesn't affect us of course it affects us it affects the, the whole world when one country starts gobbling up its neighbors and for jd vance to be that vocal saying let it go what would he have said in the 30s would he have been one of those that that just allowed hitler to become hitler i, I honestly have no idea right and it's I, I think about this situation and it's it's like okay I get the the non-intervention sort of mentality and stuff, right? And I don't think anybody is right now arguing, yeah, we need full-scale military, you know, uh, involvement in Ukraine or anything like that. But to basically say what happens in Ukraine doesn't matter, like why are we why are we focusing on Ukraine at all? It's like, you know, I, I think it's part of a symptom of this like. Um, fatigue that has gone on over the past really 20 years since 9-11 where there's not so much focus on kind of foreign policy right we've really we've seen it over the past I don't know how many elections at least three four elections where like people they want to hyper focus on what's going on here without realizing that there's a kind of world around them that does matter and the dynamics do matter of what's happening but but again, it, this is so bizarre to me to just kind of come out and say, you know, no, we, it doesn't matter. We don't need to do anything. They're idiot leader. I think what is what is this quote? Idiot leaders are from it's distracting our idiot leaders from focusing on things that actually do matter to our national security. And it's like, OK, well, I mean, if if Putin uh, you know, basically trying to strong arm Eastern Europe and really kind of taking on NATO, that's really what this is about, right? If that's not a national security thing, like I don't really know what is. We're 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 stepping back ninety years and kind of reliving what happened. This is how it starts. You know, it didn't. It, it boggles my mind that somebody like J.D. Vance would take that position. And Taco Carlson, I mean, he's the biggest fiction monger. He's, I mean, I don't can't believe anybody pays attention. Yeah, to Yeah, full guy. disclosure, I worked um, for Tucker. And, like I I worked for Tucker yeah. for a while. And like really early in my career, and even I'm sort of baffled by this whole um, like appeal to this like isolationist nationalism stuff, right? It, it's sort of um, it, it's confounding to me, if I'm being honest. Yeah, it is. You're listening to today in Ohio. 
We talked Monday about how the Cuyahoga County Mental Health Board was squandering tax dollars on things like ballroom dancing and golf lessons for employees. Now we have the whole list of wellness expenses. Courtney, what are some of the highlights we did not know of earlier? Yeah, in the week? reporter Caitlin Durbin went back and, and got a more comprehensive list for us. So it looks like between 2016 and 2021, the county was paying for things that the Adams Board had approved. Um, things like Fitbits for employees, gym memberships, spin classes, dance lessons, personal trainers. Now, some of the money, I mean, that's the vast majority of where that $59,000 went. Some of it did go to legit training, um, you know, things like conferences and, and money for license renewals. But most of it went to these interesting. <laughs> There's pro- there are a lot of companies do, though, provide some sort of subsidy to people for things like gym memberships because they know that if employees work on their health, it reduces their insurance costs and it makes for a happier workforce. So there's probably some middle ground here that would be acceptable, not ballroom dance lessons and things like that, but and in whatever it was, $700 in golf lessons. But, but encouraging people to be active is something that has been part of the American workplace now for probably a couple of decades. So I, I don't know where the Adams board should fall, but some of this stuff is not all that offensive. Really. Well, and, and for what it's worth, so the Adams board has scaled back this policy and is, is trying to focus it now on, on workplace related training and reimbursements. But Adams board employees now have the opportunity to get on board with the county's wellness program that applies to, you know, all the normal county employees. So the wellness initiative there hasn't gone away. They just have a new option. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Viking Cruise Lines is a luxury operator, and it has some big plans for the Great Lakes next year. Lisa, is this a trip that you would consider taking? If I had the moolah, yes. <laughs> I, I get Viking brochures for their European itineraries, and I'm like, ooh, that's siding in a roof right there. But starting in 2023, <laughs> uh, Cleveland will be one of 10 ports of call in the Vikings' new Great Lakes itinerary, which they announced in 2020, right before the pandemic. Um, they will start at, they're like, there's like 8- and 15-day cruises. They start at $6,500 and go up to 14000 It uh, goes between Duluth, Minnesota, and Toronto. But they have some interesting day-long tours planned for Cleveland, you know, for the Cleveland Cultural Gardens, a taste of Cleveland in the West Side Market, highlights of downtown, the waterfront area, and also hikes and bikes in the Chagrin Valley National Park. And uh, Cleveland Port Authority's uh, David Guthiel says, well, we're expecting the cruise industry to bounce back really big this year, and he's very exciting for these excited for these viking tours yeah it's an interesting two-week trip you really get to see a lot of beautiful areas and some big cities and when you look at the the map that we published it it would be a fun one to go on but you're right it would cost an arm and a leg and you know keep you from putting siding on your house (laughs) you're listening to today in ohio well good to have you back lisa thank you seth thank you courtney thanks to everybody who listens we'll be back tomorrow with another roundup of the news